Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we are talking to Latasha Brown, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. I decided to talk to her today because she is a guardian of our democracy and she is one of the most dynamic voter rights activists in America. And when we talk about foreign policy in America, we rarely talk about the very people who protect its democracy domestically. And we also have to consider that many of the folks who are a part of the Black Lives Matter movement have an international lens. No one has really spoken to Latasha about her views of the world. And as you'll hear, Latasha has an incredible global context in how that informs her organizing work here in the United States. Give it a listen and um, enjoy. People who listen to our show don't need an introduction of who you are, Latasha, because I talk about you all the time as a guardian of democracy. And this podcast, we deal with foreign affairs, but I think so often in this space, we don't talk about the people who actually defend America's democracy. And you are one of them. And so I was just really, I'm just grateful that you even took the time to be on our, you know, to be, to be on my show. It, it means a lot to me. But for those who need an introduction, this is uh, Latasha Brown, who's a co-founder of Black Voters Matter, who basically helped along with other activists to bring the state of Georgia home for the Democratic Party. So tell me how you feeling. You know, I am I'm feeling every emotion you can feel. I'll say the first thing I'm feeling is sleepy. <laughs> you know, for the last two days, I've been up the first day I was, up. you know, because it was election and I just couldn't go to sleep. You know, they were they were they were playing with my emotions with the numbers. You know, but once I saw the cab county was out there, I was like, oh, we good. Right, <laughs> right. You know, and I felt that way anyway. Um, but you know, I knew I had a sense. I mean, you had in in terms of doing this kind of work, you know, there's the hard science of doing the work where you know your numbers. And so we 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 got that part, but then there's this. You can have the hard science and not like really feel when there's going to be a change. There's never been an election where we didn't have a historic turnout that I couldn't feel it. Like you, it's something really charged in the energy um, in the air. And so I could feel it. I could feel it. I could feel it. I was like, it's changing the air. I don't know how else. I know some folks were like, whatever. But listen, I'm from deep south. We like we roll like this. So I could feel um, I could feel a lot of change in the air. And I can feel that kind of energy. And so, you know, right now what I'm doing, I think I'm processing. I'm processing a whole bunch of things, probably like everybody else. You know, I'm processing, you know, the the fact that we allow this country to get to this point. <laughs> like, we literally allow this country, instead of moving forward, we've actually gone backwards um, because you know, millions of people in this country wanted to follow the message um, and the character of a uh, of a white uh, supremacist, loving fascist um, 
destructive, confused, and um, uh, criminal uh, like Donald Trump. And so here we are, but in, and, and as much as I could wanna just kind of lay the blame at his feet, and I certainly think that he's led this, the truth of the matter is he's not the only one to blame and he's not the first and he will not be the last. That what he did is he actually gave a face and a platform um, for those who seek to divide in this country instead of unified, for those who um, actually really believe that, that, that don't fundamentally believe in democracy. They don't fundamentally believe in democracy. And on some level, I think what we saw displayed with the takeover at the Capitol, they don't really believe, they don't believe at all in, in, in law and order, only when it is inflicted upon black people, poor people and people of color. And so right now I am processing you know, the fact that, you know, it's interesting and, and you have to be duplicitous when, you, when you're a black person in America. You know, on one hand, I am processing uh, this enormous win that would not have been done had it not been for black voters, right? Yet on the backdrop of that, on the same day that black voters delivered um, a significant um, vote to make sure that I mean, in, in sake of uh, really in terms of that is going to, at the very least, um, keep this democracy um, in some level of semblance of what we've known, that on that very same day, we also know on that day, Brother Jacob, who was shot in the back, that we all witnessed, we actually saw this, you know, on video by a police officer who was less than elbow, um, elbows length away from him that followed him, that was the aggressor, and shot and paralyzed this man um, while his children watched. And on this same day, the fish, local officials say that they're not gonna charge anybody because it was self-defense, you know, even with his back turned. And so that is literally the backdrop um, of what black folks have to deal with in this country. And then the very next day, you know, we see you know, a storm, a mob, you know, of, of a white mob, unruly, violent um, mob go in and descend on the Capitol. I was thinking to myself, the last time I went to the Capitol, I literally had my cell phone um, to real. I was standing out like in on the grounds and literally like down from the stairs, just like on the grounds, but I was standing out like for a long time, texting back and forth with somebody. And an officer came to me at, and told me to move on. So I couldn't even damn text. Right, in, in, in one spot without like someone saying, man, what you doing, right? But here it is, there's a mob. So on, on what, so I'm processing in all of that, I'm processing these things. I'm processing um, the fullness of what, what, and what, what we're dealing with and where we are in this country, you know, where we are in this country. And it's not, you know, it's interesting, my, while a lot of my, while I'm super domestic right now, you know, my heart is actually in international work. My my dream job is to work, um, you know, work with the UN. I don't know if I want to work for the UN at this point, um, but but to work with the UN, I literally want the UN as a body. Um, like everybody around me knows this. Like that's my, you know, I literally believe that there should be a global body, a, a strong global body like the UN. If I was um, if I was a wealthy person um, like Ted Turner, I would, without question, I would singly fund the UN because I do believe that there needs to be a platform. There needs to be 
um, and a, a, some, a the infrastructure, um, you know, the same vision that WEB and others had around the creation of that body, a United Nations body. And so the United States is really interesting, has been so disruptive, you know, disruptive with that body. In some ways, America has seen and obstructionists. Itself, and been obstructionist. You know, I went, I am a part of, um, I do a lot of human rights work and, and I, I, I actually do a lot of international work. I haven't for the last um, year, but I use, I'm always doing international work. That's always a part because I actually believe that the part of, you know, that you can't talk about globalization as it relates to corporations and not recognize that there's a need for us to really be able to build these global and international relationships, that that's going to be key and critical for the movement. And so um, about a year or two ago, maybe a year, actually a year ago, I think this is the last time I went to Geneva. It was, it was a year. I was in UN at, um, in the United Nations. I was um, representing civil society um, around the establishment of um uh, a the what well, was the working group on people of African descent, and we wanted to form that into a um, an actual body as part of the UN, and we went to all of the delegation. There were people that came around well, uh, from around the world was a, a, for this particular event and this um, this session, and I went to meet with our um, our representatives from the U.S. And I will never forget that I'm sitting down with them and they're like, we don't have any directives. We don't, I, we can't even respond to what it is that you requested because we don't have any directives. We don't know how to respond, <laughs> right? Wow. And, I, and that's when I got it. I was like, what do you mean? And I think it was, I think I happened to be there. I think it was like either the week after the US had pulled out from um, the UN Human Rights Commission. The U, yep. U, um, mm -hmm. And I was just like, what, like people, we're so caught up in what he's doing domestically, but I think I was like, people don't really understand how he's repositioning the U.S. globally and repositioning the U.S. in a way that he's basically saying to the rest of the world, we ain't really down with no human rights now, right? We are like out of this, like all of this from him pulling from the Paris Accords and all those other things. You know, I'm, I'm raising that because I think it's really important for us to understand that the two are connected. Or at least I feel like the two are connected. I agree. I agree with you. You know, it's and you know with the work that I do, I'm actually I'm flying out tonight. Literally, my bags are are, are set to go um, from some of the work that I do. I, I cover. So I, I think the problem that I find is that the rest in, in too many cases. One, and I don't. You could tell me if you have this experience. I think as a black person who understands this country the way that we do, um. We engage with folks outside of America differently from how they're used to hearing about America. So, oh, so, 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 for, so for example, um, my area, I tend to focus on the former Soviet Union. So I'm in Ukraine, Russia, the Republic of Georgia, those places. And you have to be a kind of unique black person being that particular part of the world anyway, just to put that out there. But... I think, and so the type of person that you get that goes to those spaces tend not to have the reviews that I have, you know, about America, which are very, you know, like, like how we think about America. And so there, I have to constantly tell people that this country is not the beacon of democracy that you think it is. I have to constantly tell them that when I walk down the streets here in Best Eye, Brooklyn, that I'm ever vigilant about where the cops are, not because I want them to protect me 
so much as I fear that I will run into the wrong one. Uh, I spoke with some colleagues uh, yesterday and I spoke with some people from Uzbekistan yesterday who were saying, wow, uh, they are diplomats and they're saying, wow, we are kind of surprised about what's going on in America. I said, you know, we're going to have to have another conversation, okay, about America. And so what for you, what does it mean to be the, to do the work that you do and talking to people abroad about America and what are their responses? That's a, that's a good question. Well, a couple of things, let me say this. Um, I've always traveled extensively, um, of course, because of COVID-19 and just because I have been super hyper-focused on um, the last few years mm -hmm. on domestic um, politics. Um, you know, I, it's interesting, but something has actually really, really, really shifted. You know, when I first um, would travel, when I was first traveling, everywhere I was going, everywhere I went, you know, people might as well, thought, you know, people were talking about America like it was the land of milk and honey. I was like, well, who told y'all that? <laughs> <laughs> Where did y'all get that from, right? Yeah. You know, I, um, I remember, I have, matter of fact, I have a friend who just, who went to, um, uh, uh, country, went to Ghana and was saying that some of the young people she were talking to the young people she had taken and was like, we wish she, we had been enslaved. And we were like, wait, 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 wait. Like you wish that you had been enslaved so that you would be in, and, and it was in this conversation. It was like, yeah, so because then we would be in America. And we're like, wow, like it was such, and, and, and I remember going to places um, that folks had this high regard even those places that I went where they were critical of some elements of America, America was still seen as this, this, it's like the, it's like the MVP player that you want to hate on, but you still acknowledge they the MVP player. That's kind of like how, 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 how people would deal with it. And then, you know, my last trip, and I think it was probably this trip that the last trip that I went to Europe in particular, I went to Brussels. I spent, I went to Geneva, so I spent some time in, in um, Switzerland. I spent some time in France and Brussels. And I remember everywhere I went, people, when I would walk in, they would say Trump's name and they would laugh. They were like, what are y'all doing? Like that, like America is a joke. Like their entire, everywhere I went, you know, it was that kind of response. And I was like, hmm, something has shifted, you know, and, and so, you know, and that's on that experience. I can also sh um, share the other experience that when I went to countries, um, I uh, went to Cuba and I went to Venezuela and I've gone to South American countries. Had seemed like they had a different kind of um, a different kind of orientation. When you know, when I went to um, European countries, you know, they they had a different kind of of, of I think belief around America. Um, and then when I went to South American countries, you know, they still felt like on some level America was a standard, but they had a little bit more, I think, uh, 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 um, a different kind of critique of it. But overall, there was kind of this notion that America was the stuff. Like, okay. White people, like, I think, I find it tends to come from uh, Europeans. Oh, it's tr primarily Europeans. Primarily, oh, yeah. without question. Either Europeans or people who want to be Europeans, right? You know, I, yeah. <laughs> And, and folks who are literally in, um, I, like I can tell 
you can tell what countries were colonized because I would go to certain countries, literally certain countries, even in the Caribbean and the way that they would speak about um, Americans would be so interesting. Um, it was it was almost like, why y'all over there complaining? Y'all live in America, like what? We don't understand. What does that complain about? You're in America. Um, and I would say, well, why don't you come? And then you'll see, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, so so my point is, what America has done a fantastic job at is uh, America is the ultimate marketing machine. It is the propaganda placeholder. Like I was getting ready to say, yeah, yeah. I was definitely yeah. push this image of American exceptionalism all around the world, and people have believed it. The challenge is now that very thing is coming back to hunt it, right? Because it is one thing for this to be this strong and um uh, democracy that can't be penetrated, right? This democracy that we've got this, yes, we have two different parties, but we have a stable government. And then to see, right, um, a mob get into the, I mean, that's something that we see when folks are in civil war. What we saw yesterday was a coup, an uh, attempted coup, like that are going into the, the, the Congress, breaking out windows, people getting shot, um, hanging from the rafters, I'm like, like all of those things, you know, in many ways, I think America also boxed herself or boxed, himself, boxed itself um, in this particular kind of pristine view. And all I will say is Pandora's box has been open and the truth is coming out. And I don't think it just started yesterday. I think a lot, I think America has taken a major international hit um, with, with the Black Lives Matter movement that for people all around my friends that live in different places around the world to see, there's like, how could this happen in America? George Floyd blew their minds. I have friends in England that called me and was like, how could this happen? Like, how, how is this like, like, why is he just holding him and just letting him die? We're watching it, we're watching it. Like you all can't do anything about that. And so, and I think those just ongoing images, ongoing images and the, and the lift that up, that's why we saw people all around the world, black, white, you know, Asian, um, it didn't matter, um, European, everywhere, uh, literally be able to uh, align themselves with the, knowing why there was value in the Black Lives Matter movement. But what's really fucked up about it is that it requires our bodies being battered and shedding blood for people to get it. And that's that's the really fucked up part about it, you know? Um, uh I agree, but I, I think that's because of what we're overcoming. We're overcoming, if I'm telling you, it's kind of like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If I'm telling you that I am like, I am, listen, I'm the wealthiest in the world. I got, listen, I can like, I got the biggest military in the world, military wipes. Look, I got the most diversity in the world. I mean, I've got the most stable democracy in the world. If I'm saying that and I'm pushing out images, of doing that every every single day i can understand why people think that way and i'm and i am controlling the narrative of those who have been oppressed i am controlling the images of those who have been i remember going to china um in about eight years ago and we went to remote parts of china and i couldn't understand why I all of a sudden was an automatic superstar. People were taking pictures of me. And I asked the woman, she was like, they'd never seen black folks. I was like, how is that possible? I don't really, I was like, <laughs> I, I, like how could you not in 2012, I what, think. What, but what did they do with you, uh, Latasha? Like what were the, what, did it annoy you? Because I know, some, like I, with me, people, when I, I had hair, people. 
why it didn't bother me because I was like, you need to see some black folks. So yes, please take my picture and tell all your friends. Okay, like, see, I don't... It see, it didn't bother me either because I, I yeah, good. I, it didn't bother me either. But you know, one thing I want to get into is since you understand the ins and outs of Ameri the, the American democracy, particularly with Georgia, just walk us through the types of voter suppression that you saw firsthand as you were organizing for black folks to vote in that state? You know, every single um, part of the path to getting to vote, um, there is some form of voter suppression. I'll just highlight on some, um, the, the, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna focus on kind of the pre. You know, before we even get to talking about voting, you got to register in this country, you have to register to vote. Um, and once you become a registered voter, then you are, um, um, you're able to vote, to participate in that way. And so part of what I've seen is I've seen a lot of focus on making it as difficult as possible to prevent people from just registering to vote. Bottom line, just registering to vote um, in many ways. And, and in that process, there are things from um, I'm going to start with two just really obvious that people kind of dismiss, but they have been very effective tools. One has been felony um, disenfranchisement, that if you somehow, if you've gone to pres a prison or somehow because you've gotten a felony, that you lose your right to vote. Well, do I lose, do I still have to pay taxes? <laughs> like, I'm like, are you still expecting <laughs> me to pay taxes? And then how that work? How, like, how you think that work, right? Um, you're supposed to be able to be, because I'm a citizen, I still got responsibility to pay taxes, right? When I'm working and I'm out and I paid my dues, but then I can't participate in the process. That's, isn't that called taxation without representation? Didn't they, like the Boston Tea Party or something that kind of created a nation, like start out that, well, let me, I'm, I'm digressing. But the bottom line is that is one way, one tool um, that has been used to prevent people from participating in the process. And we kept running into folks, um, young people, particularly, young men, young black men who were barred from um, participating in the process because of um, felony convictions. And some of them, what was interesting, I remember meeting this brother who um, had a felony conviction for um, selling weed, marijuana. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, they're white dudes right now, your same age on the other side of the country who are literally getting wealthy, doing something that has barred you from being able to participate in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the in this civic engagement process, in this political process. That can't be right. Right. And so that is like that's one. The second thing is like using these barriers like voter ID or that in some way that um, not really recognizing that and, and certain IDs like in some places like in, in Texas, one of those cases there that I can have a, a state ID that is issued by the college um, at, at the HBCU or Prairie View, but I can't use that ID to vote with. Right. And so just those different kind of barriers are just want, uh, uh, mindful. But in this particular election, you know, where I saw it um, the most, particularly in the pre-stage, is actually missing, list, literally purging the voting rolls. We're actually engaged in a lawsuit right now that in Georgia, most folks know that in 2018, in the Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp um, race for governor, that there was a lot of conversation around how he had used his seat as a, the secretary of state to purge millions of folks had hundreds of thousands of people um more accurately um from the voting rolls and as a result he had done that with with precision over the years so that when it was time for election many of those folks uh, were no longer on the voting rolls and so 
right after that in 2019, eight months, six months, I'm sorry, six months before the 2020 primary, the current Secretary of State, Raffensperger, did the same exact thing. He dropped 328,000 people from the voting rolls. Of those 328,000 people, um, 198,000 who supposedly were dropped because they no longer lived at their place of residence um, were dropped from the voting rolls wrongly. That what we discovered is that while of, while of, um, of that one, of the 328, those 198,000, they had never moved. There was no, we couldn't figure out where they got, the, got that information from. We worked with an investigative journalist, which is why I love y'all, because um, that journalist can't make the difference. Um, um, Greg Powers and an investigative team um, and his team and a team of experts that literally do data hygiene work for, for Apple and Amazon and top one, Fortune 100 companies to look at the list and they check the list and they check the double check the list, cross reference the list with over 200 different sources. And we continue to come up with this 198,000 people that we can't figure out how in the heck did they get dropped when there's no evidence that they had moved and even reaching out to them. We discovered folks who have been sitting, staying in their houses um, for 27 years. And so we had, we decided, we literally reached out to the Secretary of State and told him to restore those folks immediately because they should be able to participate in this, this last election. He did not do so. Um, and so as a result, we sued him. And so we're still, we, a couple of weeks ago, where we were asking, went to the courts and asked for injunctive relief. We wanted the courts to force him to either prove that those folks should be dropped from the voting rolls um, and, or to restore them immediately. Mm -hmm. And the, because it was the early vote had already started by the time the judge made the ruling, they did, the courts didn't want to interfere in the process. So what they did is they told us for both of us to sit down and work it out. And of course, you know, the Secretary of State, we've not heard from them. Right. Um, this is a longer story, but the bottom line is there were 198,000 voters disproportionately black voters, that we don't know how they came up with them on the list. The Secretary of State didn't even meet the basic requirement um, of the National Registration Act that says you have to have a third party licensee to verify that those folks had moved. He didn't even bother to do that, although it's in the law, um, that were not registered um, in this process unless they got our information or let them, and re-registered. Um, before this election. So that's one way. I mean, that's a big old chunk. We're talking about in this election, the vote difference was what? Um, for one candidate, 20,000, a little over 20,000. 20, the other candidate, um, well, he went a little bit, uh, um, 30,000, something yeah. like that. So we talked about 100, and I want people to understand the magnitude, 198,000 people. Um, and many of them were not, didn't even know that they had been purged. But think about this though, in this country, so, I, I always tell people that it, it, America is arguably the top country in the world when we think about the, you know, democracies, the, the open democracies. It, it's at the top when it comes to making it difficult for people to participate in the electoral process. And when I tell people this, they're lost. And I have to explain all of these things. I have to talk about the similar things that you're discussing. And so... You know, I, I want to really get into, you know, as we close out is, you know, when Biden, well, first, you know, in regards to Georgia, um, one of the benefits of the work that you've been doing is that you, we have two Democratic senators uh, coming out of the state of, of of Georgia. And when we talk about foreign affairs issues, when we're talking about the Iran deal, when we're talking about, 
you know, create nuclear policy uh, policies that uh, that work to for nuclear nonproliferation or dealing with policies that will um, challenge the militarization of America, not only domestic, not only abroad, but domestically. You know, you'll have two people, particularly with Warnock, who's an anti-war person, period, you know, in his politic. And he brings this. He, I think he, he Warnock in particular will challenge the the far right, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, the far right religious, uh, the, the, the religious far right. We're both people of faith and we understand mm -hmm. how important it is to have somebody like Warnock to bring in that religious moral voice uh, to Washington. So how important do you think and consequential do you think both of these um, wins are with Warnock and all stuff is for domestic policy as well as abroad? Oh, that's a great, that's a great, great question. I mean, I think a couple of things. I think you said it. I think the biggest issue that we're dealing with is over-militarization. And so what it, it has not just been America's presence um, internationally abroad, but it's also been internally that and, and domestically. And so that's why I think we always have to keep those things connected. They're far more connected that, um, than we think they are. You know, the only reason why America, I think, is able to get away with it um, uh in, uh, domestically is because they're under this guise, it hides behind this uh, American exceptionalism. And America has done a very good job at being able to use fear mm -hmm. to control people, mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about Trump, Trump didn't just create that. America does a great job at telling folks, like they coming to get you and everybody was like, okay, get the guns, do what you gotta do, blow them up, kill them. You know, go in the Middle East and mm -hmm. kill children at schools and bomb schools and bomb, mm -hmm. If that's going to protect us, that's okay, right? And so it has um, it has done a very good job at prophesizing um, this idea of, of, of it's it's such an irony though, isn't it? It's like oh, uh, like using excessive force is going to bring the peace. Like it's sometimes like it's just like <laughs> like I'm going to be extremely destructive and murderous, but that's going to be the peace. But but here's here's the interesting thing though. So when you see the violence that took place, that well. The violence that takes place uh, that takes place against people like you who are doing what I consider noble work, and the way that America uses force abroad, don't you see the parallels there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What I am saying is, it absolutely that is that's my point. It is a continuation because it's a value system. That part of what we're not, it's not just a tactic and a strategy. It is, this is a very violent country. This country, the founding of this country was literally grew out of violence, right? It grew out of the, of the annihilation of the genocide of a whole people who were here already, of the indigenous people, right? That like it grew out of the enslavement, right? Of, of, of the exploitation, the exploitation of, of Africans, um, the exportation, even this whole idea of come to America, part of it was to build its workforce. Although if you really learn the story of how the Irish were treated when they first got here, mm -hmm. when you look at how the treat, um, how poor Eastern Europeans were treated, um, um, when you look at literally this history that it has always exploited um, hum humanity to build a wealthy, comfortable community for the elite. That is what America has been quite consistent at. And the part of what has been very consistent in rallying us around is that we all like, like we like power. Like we like yeah. this idea of like we're exceptional. We like the idea of feeling like we've got the most guns than anybody else in the world. And that we can just push a button and blow folk up if we need to. I mean, the whole 
whole, uh, if we, if you really think about it, is this that whole uh, a Cold War hatred piece was the fact that that Russia had the audacity to be competitive with the U.S. It, as related to nuclear we um nuclear weapons. I am like, so happy that you brought this up. I am so yes, yes, yes. And as somebody, you know, Latasha, I, I you know, when when I I have to tell you this. When, in 2016, people were asking Terrell, how come you're not on network television? How come you're not? Because, you know, this is my field. And the reason right. why I said that I'm not there so often is because I don't look at all. First of all, with Russian interference, they are an imperial nation. So it's America. They're supposed to do that shit. Okay. That's what they do. That's what they do. But that's what we do. So I'm saying like they, as, as America. So, but, but again, I, I, and then also, I have a more nuanced understanding of how Russian politics and how the culture and society works regionally. That it really, the, the problem that I had was that people were looking for me to say, oh, this is such a shame that Russia aggression is, you know, it, it is, is attacking the heart of who we are as Americans. I didn't come on with that line. I found when I didn't have those talking points, people didn't invite me. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you're supposed to say that Russia is the enemy, that Russia is the bad guy, we're the good guys, and not really talk about, like, part of this is both of y'all are really um, being driven, both of y'all are operating as an imperialist yes. um, value. Like, just let's just be honest. One just is a little more honest and open with it than the other. That's all. <laughs> but, that, that, but see, I'm so happy that you brought that up because people who are listening, I have a, we have a whole lot of people in the, you know, the Washington um you know like um, um defense communities that listen to this and i and i always drive this home and particularly people like you who are driving it home and so you know uh you know again another question is what when when biden spoke uh in response to the to the to the to the coup yesterday the attempted coup i appreciated the tone and tenor generally you know i appreciate the fact that he described the, the people as a mob I, I i appreciate that right um the issue that he that he that he uh that i had with some of his words was is common with what a lot of people say about america which is this is not who we are I, listen listen <laughs> <laughs> listen i am you know and and let me say this you know i am this is my country this is where i grew up i don't know anywhere else like that i can claim home mm -hmm. but so this is my country so because there's an because I love the people of this nation um, and I love the possibility and the potential. And for all the critique that I have for this country, I also have a healthy understanding that there are some elements that exist here that are uniquely different, mm -hmm. um, that create, I think, a space for there to be a possibility to radically reimagine this country. That is why I fight so hard. If I thought it was a lost cause, that'd be something different. I don't. I don't necessarily think, of, and what I mean by that, I don't necessarily know if well, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go down the long road on that. Let me just say this: that I think because of the people, um, uh, the people that are in this country, and I do think that there's elements in the movement, the shaping of the movement, um, that there is a. I can radically reimagine there to be a nation um, that reflects the values of which um, I believe in. Uh, but I can also be honest and say we ain't there yet. That ain't where we are, right? And I think we have to really be honest about that. And then, and, and, and so to say, you know, this is not who we are, then who, 
I, one, I wouldn't want to know who you're talking about because, you know, I saw the the military shoot rubber bullets at folks because the president wanted to walk across the street and take a photo op. Like, so what you mean that ain't who you are? This is a country that has dropped a bomb on black activists in Philadelphia, right? And like, and so how you mean that ain't who you are? You literally, this is a country that invaded Cuba because they had the audacity to align with with uh, Russia around some um, um, a supposedly placement of mi missiles and got beat down because they were trying to do that without like without anybody knowing. What do you mean that ain't who you are? Like this is a country that on a daily daily basis we pick up our cell phones. We're looking at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're going to see some unarmed black man or black woman being killed by a state sanctioned through state sanctioned violence. What do you mean that's not who you are? This is precisely who we are. This is precisely who we are. The question is, do you want to be different? And so if he, what I would rather is to be honest about this is not who we want to be. I would rather for you to say, this is not our desire to be this, that we want to evolve. But to say this is not who we are, that is exactly who many have experienced you to be, right? And so to be those children that are in cages right now, that literally been separated from their families, who do you think you are to them? Those countries that we have bombed them, innocent civilians, because they happen to be born and live in the Middle East, and then you got this idea because you're going to fight the enemy that they could just be a casualty in your war. Who do you think? That's exactly who you are. Who you are is you have been a nation that has had a over-militarized um, policy that focuses on military might that will what will, will protect capital interests at the at the risk of destroying of murdering of taking innocent life that is who you are so the question is who do you want to be and so what i would rather is i understand I, and quite frankly i was actually happy to hear his statement in the sense that i do believe that there was some there was sincerity around the calm and I think there was a calmness and a, a particular kind of leadership that is needed in this moment um, and a voice of reason. So I give him, you know, I give him kudos for that. But there is something in this country that this whole notion of that we can like we just got to move Trump out the way and then we're going to heal America, move forward in order to heal. You got to stop the pain. And so we've got to really be honest about that part of what happened yesterday is a comes out of a creation of not just Trump. It comes out of a history and a culture in this country that says any life, anything can be destroyed if in any way it, it comes up against white privilege and white power. And so on yesterday, right, what we saw is a mob that responded in a very consistent way who those in this country have responded to those that feel that white exceptionalism is a at at, at is, is is threatened being threatened so that's we've got to be honest around what that is and we've got to be honest about where we are and so more so like i i don't have as strong about a feeling around um president elect's uh, uh, uh biden's comments because i think that they were needed yesterday i i do right um but i have a larger critique around that entire that whole uh, that that whole belief, you know, that that whole piece around every time I hear it, I cringe 
you know, because it's not, it didn't just come from him. It's constantly saying, this is not who we are. You know, and 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 maybe, maybe the other side of me is actually perking up right now. So maybe let me, let me, let me kind of examine this. Perhaps, you know, my grandmother used to say, um, a a Bible knowing woman from the deep south of Alabama, born in 1910, would always say that you got to speak life into people. So perhaps, you know, there was good intentions um, on his part to actually speak to something greater um, in the human spirit. And to be honest, I do that often. You know, sometimes I think you have to to speak to something that that you don't see, but um, you're trying to pull out. And so. I'll give, you know, I'll give him some grace for that. So perhaps that's what he was speaking to. The truth is, though, that this is a country that has been steeped in violence. This is a country that has has coddled white supremacy, has nursed racism, has rooted itself in otherizing anybody outside of the white elite and has has been extremely sophisticated in how we've propped propagated who we are around the world um, as some kind of exceptional nation. You know, I will say that I do believe in my heart. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of all the hell that I go through in doing this work, um, I so believe and love the people of this country. I really do believe the potential. America is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> like I went to... I was in California. You ride down Highway One. I was like, y'all got it going on. Like, you know, I go down to Alabama and I ride through the trees. This nation has all of the elements to be an amazing nation, but that means it has to be willing to evolve and change and to uproot and to be accountable and to stop the pain. If you are the wealthiest in the country, why do you even have thirty million people in poverty? That's foolish. Right, there is enough resources in this country that this nation could in fact be a beacon of light to the rest of the world. There's enough brilliance and diversity in this country that this country actually could be um, a symbol of what a united nation um, could look like, right? You know, so, but in order to do that, the first thing we've got to do is we have got to uproot and address structural racism and really be honest about every single system in this yeah, country. It, absolutely. absolutely. Listen, um, and I want to thank you for coming on and for and also for breathing life into Georgia and the rest of this country. And so we met on the campaign trail. So I've seen you in action. I've seen you convert people into voters. And so I know this firsthand. So. You know, you are a guardian and, and, and a um, somebody uh, of this country's democracy. And so when we think about how our country would be better represented in this world, you are one of the key people who are making it happen. And so listen, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Latasha Brown, thank you so much for all of your sacrifice and thank you for being you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and have a happy, safe trip. Like you stay traveling on an airplane. I'm like, listen now, be careful. Be well. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes 
but we need your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off. Thank you.